This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah at the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're talking about the cultural landscape that is the Bears Ears region with Ralph Barillo, a conservation scientist and author of the recent book, Behind the Bears Ears, exploring the cultural and natural histories of a sacred landscape. This expansive region has received increased national attention and is situated right here in Southeast Utah. So if you look on a map, trace your finger along the Colorado River uh, as it extends from the northeast corner of Utah down toward uh, the southwest corner. And, you know, right where it hits the major tributary to the east, and that's the San Juan River. So then trace your finger back that way, go along the border of Utah and Arizona, parallel that border, until you hit the border of Utah and Colorado, and then back up. The triangle that's formed by that is essentially the Bears Ears area. In 2016, the Bears Ears region was designated as a national monument by President Obama and then shrunk in size by President Trump in 2017. But it's a place that Ralph Barillo, whose pen name is R.E. Barillo, knew well, even before its recent publicity. The, the landscape itself, it's about, about the most heterogeneous landscape I think I've ever seen. You know what I mean? It just, it offers so much. The rock formations, the clays that practically form themselves into uh, ceramics as you look at them, uh, the plants and the animals, you know. And then, of course, the archaeology is just off the charts. The Bears Ears region has been inhabited by people for tens of thousands of years, and Barillo, who's trained as an archaeologist, outlines the human history of Bears Ears in his book, which explores the region held sacred by the five tribes that make up the intertribal coalition, the Hopi, Zuni, Ute Mountain Ute, Diné, and Ute, and the many other descendant tribes that have ties to the area. Uh, what Western researchers call the Paleo-Indian period begins somewhere around 13,000, no, 14,000, no, 15,000. I mean, it changes almost by the week. They keep pushing it back, and they and good. But in the Bears Ears area itself, right around 12, 12,500 with uh, a material culture called the Clovis culture, there's, there's evidence of, uh, of them, and especially down around Bluff. One of the things that's, that's truly unique and special about the Bears Ears area, and it goes back to that, the density of the place. There's riparian there low desert, high desert, there's uh, subalpine, there's, you know. Um, but because of that, it was continuously used for that entire 12,000 period, uh, if not longer. Um, and having said that, so the, you know, the earliest people that were there, these Paleo-Indian, uh, quote-unquote, hunter-gatherers or foragers, were primarily occupying, like, riverine areas where there was water that isn't really even there anymore, you know, maize or, or corn, as we call it, although that's a British term, made its way up starting at least 8,000 years ago uh, in the Valley of Mexico, started making its way up north. It arrives in the Bears Ears area uh, by 400 BC at the latest. So starting about uh, 500 AD, you know, now you start getting much more, much more sedentary. Um, you start finding more sort of public architecture uh, a, a wider range of, of cultigen, so not just maize, but corn and beans both now, uh, the bow and arrow, um, more formalized pottery. That gives way to the, the early Pueblo era, 
So this would be right around 700, 750 AD. This is when you start getting uh, the, the emergence of uh, villages. Then comes Chaco, and that's a big one. And that's, um, we, and by we, I mean researchers, uh, still don't quite understand it and probably never will. So but whatever it was, it was huge. And it endured until about 1150 AD. The weather changed again. Um, and some probably a, a bunch of other factors besides. And it was after that you move into the the third or at least in Bears Ears anyway, the terminal Pueblo period when people were building uh, cliff dwellings and actually living in uh, in cliff dwellings and shifting their shifting their occupation away from a focus mostly on arable lands to a focus mostly on uh, domestic drinking water sources. Most of this area was depopulated by these these Pueblo folks uh, to consolidate into the like the super villages that you find at Zuni, uh, Hopi, Jemez, etc. Um, not abandoned. That's a word we shouldn't use. We find tons of evidence that they were just it was part of a, a grand migration cycle and they certainly intended to come back. You know, they, they cashed seeds and stuff, you know. The predecessors of the uh, the Ute groups, uh, the predecessors of the Paiute groups, and uh, uh, Diné, or politically Navajo, start to basically occupy the entire landscape. You know, and that endured until, uh, well, it endures still, frankly, but it endured unmolested until modern American era, so starting right about 1850 with the, uh, the, the Elk Mountain mission that was up here that failed, and then Within about 20, 25, 30 years, the founding of Bluff by LDS folks on the, you know, the hole in the rock. And I mean, there were hunters there, white hunters and uh, uh, Hispanic, in fact, from, you know, herding their sheep along the Spanish trail. But really like full-fledged, you know, Euro-American uh, occupation began in the late 1800s. And, and the rest is recent history. The well-preserved cultural material, like pottery and cliff dwellings in the Bears Ears area, have interested archaeologists since the discipline first began. But early Western archaeologists were often very disrespectful to sites that still held tremendous significance for Native people. So the earliest archaeologists there, for the most part, were, were what we would nowadays just straight call looters, you know? Um, Richard Wetherill, I, I will beat up on and everyone else beats up on him, uh, endlessly. And so let me just say this in his defense. Uh, this was, uh, the 1890s, um, in the Bears Ears area, starting earlier than that in Mesa Verde, where his family is from, but he at least took careful notes and talked about stratigraphy. Uh, the deeper you go, the older things are. And I don't know why it took until the middle of the 1800s to figure that out, but uh, formally, anyway, that's when it was established. You dig down the deeper you go because as sedimentation occurs, things pile up. And it was, you know, that idea was introduced to Wetherill by this guy, Njordenskold, from we, uh, Sweden, who went to, uh, to, was a guest at Richard Wetherill's guest ranch, his family's guest ranch in Mancos, and loved it so much that he decided to do a little grave robbing of his own while he was here. And uh, incidentally, on a side note, all the stuff that he ripped out of the ground and sent back to uh, Europe were finally repatriated last year, believe it or not. 
that's a big deal right now is repatriation. It's one I support tremendously. Um, but the, so that battle raged for uh, somewhere right along the lines of 120 years, actually closer to 140 years. You know, a, a collaborative scientific approach where researchers are working side by side and, and consulting and in some cases going beyond consulting and actually collaborating with, uh, you know, in, indigenous folks that, that have a traditional cultural knowledge about this place and these resources that go back, whew, well, something like 12,000 years. That didn't start until uh, fairly recently. What do you see as the role of Western scientists in Bear's Ears? I would like people who look, look and act just like me to focus as hard as we can on, on conservation, leave the interpretation part out, stop putting words into people's mouths that are a, a completely different you know, social group culture than we are, and, and focus as hard as we can on just, on just saving, preserving, and leave the interpretation of indigenous history to indigenous people. And to that end, you know, we, need, uh, we need more indigenous scientists. We need more indigenous archaeologists. Uh, and, and that, I think, is the direction it needs to go next. Own the fact that, that we as human beings can't really do human science without having our own, our own thoughts, feelings, perceptions, etc. leak into it, and just lean into it. An indigenous scientist, if you're just going to be honest about that, about the fact that you as a human being doing social science uh, can't be 100%, uh, 100% objective, Somebody with an indigenous background looking at indigenous history is going to understand it in their heart and deep in their mind in a way that I simply cannot. And for the Hopi in particular, and this is, you know, Lyle uh, has taught me this over the years, that they, for example, they don't look at, uh, like, archaeological sites, they don't look at them as objective and discrete things sitting there. You know, they look at them as a living part of their history in the sense that, you know, these are footprints is the term that Lyle taught me to use, Lyle Balinqua. Um, you know, when you look at these archaeological sites, you know, as they move around, uh, as they move around the landscape, so to speak, it's like you're looking at footprints on a beach and they're not separate and discrete things. They were left there by, so to speak, you when you were walking over here and walking over there and walking over here, and so they're still alive. They're telling you that message that connects, and they're, they're inseparable. Well, I never thought of that. You know, I wouldn't come to that conclusion, but it's brilliant, and it's a much, a, a much better way to read the history. These ideas that you're putting out there, how widespread is that within the field at large and then also uh, within other you know, people doing archaeology, anthropology here in the Southwest? increasingly and especially in and around the Bears Ears area, the science itself is sort of trending in that kind of direction. A lot more collaborative, um, uh, a lot more multivocal, a lot more intersectional, you know. Uh, it's headed that way. It really is. Uh, but the science itself, I think most people would be surprised to see that, that no, they're, they're racing along in that direction. There's certainly a lot more that needs to be done. Uh, and And more ground that needs to be covered in those sorts of directions. But that is where it's headed. What do you see as um, the role of scientists and archaeologists specifically in the Bears Ears region and in kind of these conservation battles that are raging in this area? The role 
ideally, the role I see is one of of uh, of ally. And I again, I I, I probably sp- I, I I speak only for myself because I only have the authority to speak for myself. But I know I've got at least a few friends that agree with me that where our science can be used best is in a a conservation or a preservation uh, a support role. You know where we can come along and we can we can take these these tools that we have the, these predictive models and you know landscape statistics and even behavioral models which is my background and say this tells us this about how this landscape is used and how you know how the animals move around and things like that comma here's why this area needs to be set aside this one needs to be this type you know needs this type of management etc there's a lot of cultural and scientific resources, for lack of a better word, on the landscape. And you talk in your book about tourism and the increased Mm. exposure and the increased visitation because of it. Tell me about that. Tell me about what what you think about the current situation and the increased visitation and and the ramifications for the region. The problem with 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 hiking, with tourist visitation, is that it's death by a thousand tiny cuts. You know, it's relentless. One person really doesn't have that much of an impact. A million people sure as hell does. And and there are, there are things you can do to mitigate that. And that, again, I think this is where science can be of, of, of a tremendous help because you can, you know, we're trained to, to gather data, to crunch numbers, and look at, okay, if, if, if I was to draw, like, say, a heat map of... People go here. People don't go here as much. Um, you know, what can we learn from that? How can we apply it? You know, a million people visiting the Grand Canyon is fine. A million people visiting a place that's the size of a high school gymnasium is devastation. Responding to that in a, in a de- data-driven and intelligent way, I think, is the best that scientists can do. And then, of course, on the uh, as as usual, on the other side of that, from a cultural perspective, making sure to try, try, try. To uh, to let these these folks know that you know you're visiting a place that is a living history for people who very much care about it, and so you know treat it with respect. Don't treat archaeological sites like jungle gyms. You know don't put things in your pocket. Uh, even uh, you know don't enter structures like you know what I mean. Um, so educate ourselves. In other words, do the science, do the investigation, see what's the best way to to management. Um, and educate people who are visiting. You talk about your personal history with the Bears Ears in in your book. I mean, why? Why this place for you? Why did you want to write a book um, and work in <laughs> this Bears Ears region? I was managing a restaurant at the Grand Canyon, um, living with friends of mine at the North Rim, and 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 found this uh, this subculture of folks that love to go and look at at, at ancient you know, ancient things, uh, as a weekend obsession, the way that other folks are, uh, are, are obsessed with going, looking for birds or, or waterfalls. It's their obsession. So I slipped right in with them. And so every weekend it was like, let's go find a cliff dwelling. Or I heard about a piece of rock art around this corner. And, uh, if I'm being honest, I still do that. Um, I've just learned how to do it, you know, with respect, but it finally occurred to me that like, I've just been taking and taking and taking and taking and taking. Uh, like so many people do, and you know, not to beat up on anybody, that we're not really taught in our culture to think any other way. 
and realizing that like now I had a debt at that point, man. Like I owed, I owed that place a lot, you know, a lot. But I started uh, volunteering for, you know, Friends of Cedar Mesa and started doing, uh, you know, really trying to help as much as I can, trying to, to give back. Because it, fi- it just finally hit me that like, wow, I've taken a lot from this place, you know. And it wasn't until I met uh, Regina Lopez Whiteskunk of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and one of the founding members of the Bears Ears uh, Coalition. She said, you've got a story to tell. You should tell it. And so I did. So it was, uh, it was Regina's request. And... Um, and I hope I did her proud. She seems pretty happy with it. Well, thank you so much for coming here and telling us about um, your book and, yeah, sharing about the science of Bears Ears. Well, thank you. To learn more or listen to more Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spalding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.